Welcome to the first episode from the Pilgrim Path. I am your host, Samuel S. Thorpe, and I am a priest in the Church of England. Although I was ordained in 2018, I've actually been preaching since 2012. Some of those sermons were recorded at the time, and they shall be presented to you, so that you can hear the real thing, as it were. Others, such as today's, have been re-recorded, in order to be offered as a part of this podcast. Unfortunately, a rare handful of my early sermons have been lost in that I no longer have the transcripts from which I preached, or, on a few occasions, I preached without notes. However, 98% of my transcripts have been preserved on my website, samuelsthorpe.co.uk forward slash sermons. And so I'm pleased to be able to offer you an audio archive of my preaching here in this podcast. The sermons will be released in chronological order, and so these early episodes will be recordings and re-recordings of a much younger Samuel preaching. If you tune in regularly, you'll be able to listen to me growing up into the preacher I am today. Just a brief comment. The length and style of these sermons will vary somewhat depending on the context in which they were preached and any social situations which were being addressed then. And so, allow me to introduce the oldest sermon I have a transcript for, though I believe it was actually the second sermon which I ever preached. It was on the 11th of March 2012 at Harefield Baptist Church, where I was on placement while studying at the London School of Theology. It was part of a sermon series where each week a different preacher would tackle a chapter of Mark's Gospel. As for me, my chapter was Mark chapter 9. You are listening to a sermon from the Pilgrim Path with your preacher Samuel S. Thorpe. sermon last week focused on chapter 8, the pivotal centre of Mark's gospel, which ends on the scene from Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus is asking the disciples, who do they say that he is? This is pivotal, because before chapter 8, much of Mark's gospel is merely a collection of stories and events from Jesus' early ministry in Galilee. This is not to diminish their value, but the way in which they are presented is not necessarily chronological, like how we would tell a story, but much more like a collection of anecdotes and memories from that period of Jesus' life. This makes sense, as we tend to think of Mark's Gospel as relying on Peter's memories and recollections of Jesus. However, having reached Caesarea Philippi, The Gospel text becomes much more like a story in the way that you and I would tell a story, because Mark wants to tell the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so, from this point onwards, the story becomes much more natural as we set out with Jesus on the journey towards Jerusalem. So what I would like to try and do is to be a bit like a tourist guide to Mark chapter 9. If you imagine that here, this is a bus trip through Israel, I'll be reading out where we are, 
where we are going and point out the scenery through the windows. Does that make sense? Right. Now luckily this sermon is almost the same amount of time after Ian's sermon as the events are after the events that Ian talked about. That is, in chapter 9 verse 2 it says, six days later. So this bit happened yesterday. Six days later Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around they saw no one with them anymore, only Jesus. I'm sure that most of us are familiar with this story, and so I would just like to point out one or two things. Firstly, Jesus is transfigured or changed. The Greek is kai metamorphophe, which reminds us of the word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is the word we use to describe natural changes of state when things grow. So, a good illustration would be that of when a caterpillar changes into a beautiful butterfly. So, the sense of the Greek is, and he transforms in front of them. This shows that Jesus is dramatically changing before Peter, James and John into something as dramatically different as a butterfly is from a caterpillar. And once he's changed, he becomes dazzling white. This could remind us of Moses when he comes down the mountain, having spoken to God, and the Israelites can't look upon his face because it's shining with the glory of the Lord. And I think this is a similar thing. Jesus is filled with the glory of the Lord, and so is almost blinding to look at. Last week, Jesus asked the disciples who they thought he was, and now he is revealing to them who he actually is, and they hear a voice from a cloud saying, This is my Son, the Beloved. Listen to him. For the Jews, clouds were often symbolic of God's presence, because of the time they spent wandering the desert after leading Egypt, where they were led by a cloud during the day and by a pillar of fire by night. So what Mark is telling us here is that Jesus chose to reveal his true identity to Peter, James and John, and that that identity is that he is the Son of God. He isn't just claiming this, he's backed up by the prophets, and God confirms it. This leads to my last point on this. As well as their best friend telling them that he's the son of God, the disciples are presented face to face with two of the most important people in their history, Moses and Elijah. Yet before they can gather their wits, they vanished, leaving them alone with a distinctly human Jesus on top of the mountain. 
we sometimes ask each other, if God appeared in the room right now, how would you react? Well, I would like to think that I'd react well and at the very least recognize what was happening. But if Jesus's best friends were terrified, then I imagine I wouldn't have a clue what on earth was happening. And next we read, as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. Then they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He said to them, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. How then is it written of the Son of Man that he is to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written about him. There's just two things I'd like to highlight here. The first is that this has a signpost to where the story is going. The disciples are told to wait until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. For the reader, it seems obvious that this is referring to Jesus' resurrection. But for the disciples, this was a confusing clue to the future that they simply didn't understand. The second thing I'd like to point out is that in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 17, the same story is told. But in Matthew, he explained that Elijah had returned first, and that when Jesus is talking about Elijah's return preceding the Son of Man, he is in fact referring to John the Baptist. Unfortunately for Peter, James and John, they are to remain confused for a while as we come to the next event that happens, as soon as they get down from the mountain and rejoin the other disciples. From verse 14 to 29, When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were immediately overcome with awe, and they ran forward to greet him. He asked them, What are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak, and whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. He answered them, You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he was able to stand. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, This kind can only come out through prayer. This story is a vivid account. We hear the boy foam at the mouth, gnash his teeth and become rigid. At other times he convulses and rolls around on the floor, and even worse, he has been thrown into fire or water by these episodes. One commentator, Alan Cole, points out that to a modern audience these things look very much like epilepsy. But we need to be careful not to confuse mental illness with demonic possession. My purpose here isn't to try and draw that line. Instead, I would like to focus briefly on the faith of the boy's father. Jesus seems to criticize him for not having enough faith for the boy to be healed. Yet the father clearly has some faith, because he's made the effort to try and find Jesus to see if a boy could be healed. Instead of Jesus, he found the disciples, and must have thought to himself, These guys can handle it, I'll ask them. This may seem odd at first glance, but a few weeks ago we saw in Mark chapter 6 that Jesus sent out the twelve and gave them authority over evil spirits. And Mark chapter 6 verse 13 says, They drove out many demons and healed many sick people. So these disciples alongside Jesus have a reputation for being able to heal. Yet here they are and they can't do it. This was a big deal, there's a big crowd, and they're trying to show that their God can do wonderful things. And they're failing, and worse, the other religious leaders are having a go at them for it. So understandably, the father may feel like it's hopeless. His son is not going to be healed. But then comes Jesus, who says, Everything is possible for him who believes. What's interesting is how the man responds. He doesn't try to say, I have faith, and act as if he believes more than he does. But rather he says, I do believe, but I need your help to overcome my doubts. As soon as the man has placed his faith in Jesus and asked for his faith to be increased, Jesus commands the spirit to leave the boy, and the boy is healed. The important thing to remember is, yes, Jesus has the power to do wonderful things in our lives, but we need to have faith that he can do it. And even more importantly, there is nothing wrong with asking Jesus to help us with our faith. Often we say that faith is a private matter of believing, but faith is so much more than that. It's a response to what God has done. So often we hear that the Christian faith is not a religion, but a relationship. But how often do we actually live like that? How often do we try to believe in our own strength? It is only when we personally commit to Christ that our lives and those of others around us are transformed, as shown by the demon being cast out of a poor boy. Following this, we read in verses 30 to 32, They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, 
The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying, and were afraid to ask him. I think this should be a comfort to us. Sometimes when we come to church we may feel like we don't understand what God is trying to say to us. I would say, don't worry. The disciples didn't find it easy and they had Jesus right there with them. The next section I'm going to read I would like you to listen to because here Jesus is teaching himself. Sometimes when we stand up the front and preach, we try and bring something new or try and explain what Jesus says. But remember, people call Jesus rabbi or teacher. So I'm going to read this bit out and simply let Jesus speak for himself. It's chapter 9 verses 33 to 40. Then they came to Capernaum. While he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another, who was the greatest. He sat down, called for twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose their reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame and to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It had seemed fairly clear-cut, up until that last section, hadn't it? I think that the message that Jesus is giving isn't a literal go-around-cutting-off-body-parts, but rather that we need to be aware of those things which affect us. And if something is causing us to stumble in our faith, then we need to look at the cause of it and remove it. 
For example, suppose that you know you are allergic to cheese, like my mum is. You don't carry on eating cheese because it's making you ill. And so you cut out of your diet anything that contains cheese, so that you can avoid the consequences. If you feel there's something in your life that keeps on dragging you down and distracting you from God, then Jesus is saying we should not ignore it. Rather, we should deal with the issue, so that it's not causing us to stumble. And finally, we've arrived at our destination, the end of Mark chapter 9. I've tried to give you a general guide to the events at this point in Jesus' story, and point out what I thought were a couple of interesting insights. I would like to finish by saying if you only take one thing away from this, take this. Jesus knows what he's doing in the Gospels. He knows why they're walking up the massive mountain. He is able to cast out demons that no one else can. He knows what the disciples were arguing about, even though they didn't tell him. And he knows that ultimately, he is here to die, and that three days later he will rise from the dead. He did it for the people then, and he also did it for those of us that follow along after. Just as Jesus is prepared to change the lives of those he met in Galilee, he is prepared to be there for each and every one of us, so that we too might believe and have faith in the God who loves us. Amen.